Recovery Elevator, episode 20. That's when I went into it. I think I, I'm trying to calculate. I tried to calculate. I think it was a seven-day blackout. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker, I have been sober for nine months, three weeks, and five days. This is a solid gold episode, and it was a tough one to bring to you, and you'll find out in a moment, but here's what we're going to cover. The topic of today's podcast is, I didn't have to drink over that, which basically means when shit hits the fan in life, you don't got to drink over it. After that, I've got Des, who has 18 months of sobriety, and she has some great insight of how to do this whole recovery thing. After that, I've got some great, you might be an alcoholic, if lines. But first, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Before we get into this podcast, I would like to dedicate Recovery Elevator Episode 20 to Frank Churchill, who on June 30th surrendered to his cancer. And I use the word surrendered because because cancer is a disease just like alcoholism. And when I was with him and I saw him in so much pain, I simply told him, I said, Frank, stop fighting. You need to surrender to this. It hurt me so much to see him in so much pain. So just stop fighting. So that is a good segue in today's podcast topic. I didn't have to drink over that, which is basically when life happens, which shit, it happened this week, but I didn't have to drink over it. Before I get into the details of what happened this week, and especially on June 30th, which is a date I will never forget, let me talk to you about what sobriety has given me. In November of 2014, basically the inception of Recovery Elevator, I went on a 6,000-mile road trip, packed the car, put Ben the Poodle in there, and I just drove. I went all the way to Seattle to see my brother, and then I went straight south. You can't go straight south, you're going to get it in the ocean, but I followed the coastline down and I stopped in Hillsburg, California to visit my uncle. I stayed a little over 24 hours, but in that time frame, I was in the moment. I was present. I was sober and I had the best time with my uncle. That before when I was drinking, the conversations were cut short because I wasn't in the moment. I remember leaving, driving away from his house in November thinking to myself, wow, What a great time I just spent with my uncle. And I'm so glad that sobriety gave me that time with my uncle before he was going to be diagnosed with cancer just four days later. How crazy is that? And then ultimately pass away due to this cancer on June 30th, 2015. And that is what happened. He surrendered to his cancer on Tuesday, June 30th, around 11 a.m. But sobriety But sobriety allowed me to be present in November and in all the conversations leading up to that moment, and especially when he needed me most at the very end. I knew things were going fast when I arrived on Sunday, so I tried to spend as much time with him as possible. It was evident on Monday night that things weren't going so hot for Mr. Frank, and hospice said somebody needed to be with him at all times. 
So I slept on his couch next to his hospital bed in his living room, and I gave him meds at 10 p.m., 2 a.m., and 6 a.m. I remember after giving him his meds at 2 a.m., I held his hand for about 15 minutes. I was truly with him. Maybe he could hear me. Maybe he couldn't. I'd like to think he could. And I said some peaceful words. I had a conversation with him, and it was magical. And I'm so glad that I had that moment. The following morning around 9 a.m., it was evident that this demon called cancer was making its final lap and kicking and coming in hot. His body pulled the blood from his hands and his feet to give blood to the organs that needed it most, his brain and his heart. His hands and feet, they turned color. They became clammy. Bruises started to show up on his body. And his heartbeat, it sped up really fast and became faint. I'm not a medical professional, and I don't claim to be, but at that moment, I decided it was time to go get my parents. When they came in, it was about the same time the hospice nurse came in. She also agreed. Look, this is happening fast, and it's going to happen real soon. So we got him changed. The nurse gave him a sponge bath. We put him in some nice clothing, got him comfortable and clean for his last moments in life. About 10 days prior, my parents had sent me a hospice pamphlet that walked you through the months, the days, the hours before death. And that was a tough read, but I'm glad I did read that pamphlet because it educated me about what was happening. And just like the pamphlet mentioned, there was that moment of lucidity, the moment of clarity before you finally check out of this world. His eyes opened. He looked right at me. He wasn't speaking. I said, hey, Frank, we are all here for you. And I called my dad over and my dad came by and my mom looked at him. His eyes were wide open. They were so blue. In the background, we had Mahler Symphony Number no. 3 playing. My brother sent me a text the night before saying he really liked Mahler Symphony Number no. 3. So I played it the night before and I played it throughout the night for him. I told Frank to hang on. Even though the last couple days I told Frank to stop fighting, stop being in so much pain, I told him to hang on because there was an amazing part in the symphony coming up in just a couple minutes. We got him changed, his eyes were shut, and he was there comfortable on his bed, resting. And right about the time the most beautiful part of the symphony arrived was the moment that Frank made that transition. Holy shit, it was hard. The nurse was holding his left hand. My mom and dad were holding his right hand. I was behind him holding his head. And my left ring finger was touching his neck and his pulse. I didn't really notice it. But my finger, subconsciously, was feeling for his pulse. Even though I did want the pain to end, I wasn't ready for it. But when my ring finger on my left hand didn't feel the faint pulse of blood being pumped to his brain again, I knew. It was over. I turned to my dad and my mom and I said just that. It's over. And you can hear it in my voice. There are tears in my eyes as I record this. This is actually the third time I've tried to record this. And that's just how it's going to be. I tried to record this the day after when I did the interview with Des. And it was not happening. This is how it sounded. Recovery Elevator, episode 20. I have been sober for... (laughs) I just couldn't get through it. For lack of a better expression, it simply sucked. But... After this difficult moment to digest, I did something different. Or shall I say, I didn't do something. I didn't drink. The urge to drink was not there. 
I wanted to be with my mom and my dad, with my family, with Frank's friends. I didn't want to go and disappear and be with a bottle. The last moment I was in a situation similar to that, I believe it was in 2007, and I was following a friend of mine home, and he just got a brand new sports car, and he tried to test the limits of it. He rolled his car, was ejected, and died. And I found his body during the last moments of his life. After I passed my roadside test, which surprisingly enough before, I only had like two or three pints. Believe it or not, that probably was enough to give me a DUI, but the cop let me go. Guess what the first thing I did when I got home was? I remember this vividly. I went straight to the cabinet and chugged tequila. But this time it's different. I'm still slapped upside the head a couple days later with this empty knot in my stomach. I'm like, oh yeah, Uncle Frank just died. And it's hard, but I'm facing it without the assistance of alcohol. Because all drinking does, it just suppresses the emotions. It doesn't make them disappear. If I was drinking right now, I would still have to one day deal with these emotions of my uncle passing away. I just wouldn't be dealing with them right now. And guess what happens when you suppress all those emotions from all those past crappy experiences? You're going to have to face them one day, but you're choosing not to face them today. When we went out to dinner the next night, I was envious of the people who held up a glass of wine, toasted it, and they drank. They drank like normal drinkers, but sure, that glass of wine, it took a little bit of the edge off for them, I imagine. For me, I just had to sit there and enjoy my alcohol-free ginger ale. That's okay, because the way I look at it, I got a head start in dealing with these emotions. They suppressed those feelings mildly for maybe 45 minutes, but I got a head start. I'm dealing with emotions. I'm recovering. And that is a magical thing that I can now do in sobriety. When I was drinking, pretty much every negative life event was an excuse to drink. I had weekend plans, and if I look at the weather report and the weather was crappy, 80% chance of rain? Come on! That just means I've got a 100% chance of getting shit-faced. Gas went up by three cents? Oh, we're drinking. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Third Eye Blind is coming to my town in July, and I'm going to be out of town? Well, I definitely know what I'm going to be doing when I'm out of town. I'm getting shit-faced. When my dog was a puppy just a little while ago, it was like, Ben, you took a shit on the floor. You took a shit on my heart. I am getting shit-faced myself. Events that I couldn't even control would cause me to drink. So you're telling me that the oceans are going to rise by a centimeter in the next 10 years? Oh, bring it on, blackout. You're paying for all those groceries with two checks from two different checkbooks. You're writing a check in 2015 in the grocery line. Well, now that I've got an extra 15 minutes to hang out in line, I'm going back to the beer aisle and I'm going to get a 24-pack and I'm getting drunk. This is embarrassing to admit, but when my fantasy football team lost, oh, binge, bender, whatever, bring it on. I'm drinking. Point is, I didn't have to drink over it. Today. Keyword, I didn't have to drink over it on Tuesday, June 30th. Neither on the 1st, neither on the 2nd, neither today, July 3rd. But I'm not going to drink over it today. And that's all I'm worried about is today. So let's get into the interview segment of the podcast. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Des to the podcast. Des, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us, Des. Let's get right into the interview. How long have you been sober? I have been sober 18 months and 14 days today. Congratulations. That's incredible. And Des, let's talk about the title of the podcast, Recovery Elevator. Talking about your elevator, when did it reach its bottom 
and you were tired of drinking and ready to get off. Um, well, I had been tired of drinking and ready to get off for some time, but um, I guess the elevator just kept going down. Um, that was, oh gosh, it was in 2013, and it, it, I just kind of couldn't stop. Um, let's see. So I, my bottomed out, I think it was the week before December 17th, I that's when I went into it. I think I, I'm trying to calculate. I tried to calculate, calculate. I think it was a seven day blackout. Um, my son, uh, had gone to the Christmas stroll one day, um, with his friends. And when he came back, I was, uh, I was in a blackout. And that was, um, that's the last thing I remember. Well, no, I actually, we got into a fight and, um, and the police were called, and he he called them and um, said he wanted to go live with his grandparents, and he never wanted to see me again. And that sent me into the seven-day blackout. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything, and that's what's scary. Um, I remember waking up one morning thinking, oh, my God, this is, I, I can't go any further down. And I called somebody that I knew, the only person that knew the way that I drank, and um and said i needed help and that person came and got me and stayed with me for a while while i shook and decided that i i knew that there was a new meeting and that's where i needed to go but it's a matter of surviving between i don't know sometime in the morning and noon and that was that was my bottom but leading to that i i, I had been drinking at work i would take the little bottles of it's a tiny bottle because they were concealable and, and, and take those to work with me. And, and that got to be a daily thing starting at eight o'clock in the morning. My bottom was just around, around all that. It was, it was pretty bleak and it was winter. It was December. So the whole look of and feel of it is, is very, very tangible almost to me. Des, there's about 30 questions that I could ask out of what you just said right there, but let's go back to when you reached out. It said, Right after your seven-day blackout, you reached out to a friend and told them how much you've been drinking. And how important was that for you to reach out and say, look, I can't do this alone. I need help. Well, I think uh, that was, if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have survived. I wouldn't be alive. So I, at that point, it was, it was just self-preservation. I knew I couldn't. I, I didn't. I find out from people that saw me that at that first meeting, I went to an AA meeting, um, that they didn't know I was going to make it without getting to a hospital. Um, but I didn't want, I mean, my pride and everything was still working against me and that I didn't want to go to a hospital because I didn't want the police involved. And that was my thinking. I don't want the police involved. I don't want to go to a, a, a recovery house because then the police would get involved and it would look bad. Not that I looked great, but it would look bad if that happened. So, yeah, reaching out to somebody, it was important that it was somebody who understood um, what I was like. And he was the only person who understood what I was like. So if I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here. Des, you got into your drinking habits a little bit. For example, you drink at 8 a.m. with a concealed bottle at work. But talk to me about your drinking habits before December 17th and, you know, the years before leading up to that. And did you ever try to regulate it? For example, only drink, not drink before 5 p.m. Talk to me about your drinking habits. Um, yeah, I did. I, it was, 
I was a writing major and I've always considered, you know, I've always justified my drinking with, well, Hemingway, you know, and all these writers and they were tortured. And so therefore, you know, I'm going to sit out here and write with my glass of wine or whatever. And if I happen to have, if I drink more than others, it's because I'm a writer and this is what we do because we're tortured souls, you know. Well, um, yeah, I, I did try to uh, justify. I tried to change, you know, from I went I went back and forth uh, between wine and and hard liquor and vodka because it was clear. And um, I tried everything. I tried not drinking before a certain time. That never worked. Um, actually, none of it ever worked. But yeah, I, I tried. Uh, abstaining, you know, but the far, the longest I could go was three days. Three days seems to be a very common uh, amount of time that people can go without having to start back up again. Um, but then it got to be every other day, and then it was every other day. And then I just gave up. I gave up trying. And I, and I knew that um, it was going to be, well, I knew that I wasn't, there was one point in time when I thought, it, I didn't even need to go to the doctor because it didn't matter because I wouldn't be around long enough, you know, so why even bother? Des, let's talk about the holidays. And everybody says like, oh, now's really not the best time for me to quit drinking, right? You know, the holidays are coming up. We've got November, Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas time. You sobered up December 17th and talking about getting outside of your comfort zone. Will you talk to me about eight days later or seven or seven or eight days later at Christmas Day? How did you spend your Christmas Day, December 25th, 2013, just a little over a week after sobering up? It's kind of odd, really, to think of the joy that was already in my heart that allowed me to get through that first Christmas. Um, because I, I came in... I came into Alcoholics Anonymous um, right when there was a lot of decorating going on at the hall. There was a lot of bustle, and there were a lot of people doing service trying to get stuff. I'd never seen anything like that. Trying to get stuff ready for Christmas parties and and New Year's Eve parties, and, and so I was recruited right off the bat. Des, do you know how to? You know, can you decorate? Can you paint? You know, can you help? And I mean, anything to get me out of my house, because I tended to isolate, anything to get me out of my house to meet other people who are like me and to get work done, to provide a service for other people. And that's what I did. And and so by Christmas, however many days you said later, and I had already had friends that I'd never had before who knew more about me than any friend that I had that, that wasn't in the program. And so my son was gone and didn't want anything to do with me. I was completely alone um, uh, as far as family goes. But um, the hall had 24-hour meetings that started um, Christmas Eve and kept going. So it wasn't even just the 24 hours of meetings that kept me. It was just all of the service. And I always say that, gosh, if it... If it weren't for the things that were going on at the hall at that time, I would have had a lot harder of time getting stuff done, remaining sober and not being sad, um, totally sad. I can't even imagine if it didn't happen that way. I think it was, you know, all because of my higher power that things happened the way they did. But I was, I gave everything to the hall and got so much more back. People were happy and people were friendly and people were understanding and everybody had, you know, the sadness because they, everybody, 
had some place where they could be, but this is where they chose to be um, because you, you, because other people need help too. We were all in the same boat, but yet we were all happy because we knew we were all healing, and that's the best place to be. There's some place where you can heal so that you can go out in the world and be a whole person. And and without that 24 hours, without without that couple weeks, it, it I just it was a it was a huge booster shot for me, and I, I don't. My sobriety is all because of the intensity of my involvement in, in the program during those those first couple weeks, months. But oh. the, the notable thing for me is that I was happy. I'm like, wow, how can I be happy when everything really on the outside looking in looks so horrible? But I was, I had serenity already then. I had serenity in oh, that quick of time I found it. You said you gave everything to the hall and then you got back everything twofold. That is a difficult concept for us alcoholics to fully grasp because we are so selfish. It's basically help other people get what they want and then eventually in return, we'll get what we want. And usually that's in the form of happiness. So that's awesome that you realize that that quick. And Des, talk to me about what it was like to stop drinking after that seven-day blackout. What were the first 24 hours like? 72 hours. What were the first week, month? And then talk to us about your first year of sobriety. And then even the first year and a half of sobriety. You, you have 18 months. I look back. Um, the first day uh, the first day was waiting for meetings. Um, and the first meeting was, I was pretty pathetic. Um, it was, oh my gosh, it hurt. I couldn't eat. I couldn't, when I came home, really, uh, I'm a pacer. So all I did was pace back and forth and fret over, you know, my son is gone. Um, my family hates me. Uh, I'm totally alone. The person who took me to the meeting, I didn't especially like. So I was stuck with somebody that kind of annoyed the heck out of me, but he's the only person who knew how I did. I was just, I was miserable the first day. Um, and then as I finally realized I needed to do this, I couldn't hang around this person. Oh, that's a long story, but I taste a lot. And then finally I started to be able to eat. Um, I, my sleep was, my sleep patterns were whenever I could. Uh, I would watch a lot of Netflix. So there's a lot of documentaries that I watched, uh, uh, a lot of stuff on happiness, actually. Um, I watched the entire eight seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Whatever I could do not to drink, to keep my mind occupied and off thinking about things, because I didn't have the skills to think about things the way that a healthy person would think about things. I couldn't process things. So I got I got a sponsor right away. It was the night that the night meeting that I went to that first day that, um, that I found my sponsor, and she... It, she was amazing. She helped point me in the right direction. She helped point me out, you know, the things that I was trying to do that were manipulative um, as far as trying to get my son back faster than really I deserved to have him back. So um, a combination of having a sponsor, listening to the things, reading my big book, and, and really just keeping my mind from going to dark places. And then as I, I grew in, in the knowledge that I wasn't the only one who had this sickness that uh, I was hiding, you know, I started to feel not so isolated. And then things just progressed as I, as I got to know more people and realized that, you know, I could say anything and everybody, m- many people had experienced my feelings. I started to feel at home. And then, and then it was just trying to only take little bites of thoughts and, and handle them that it was 
for me, the one thing that she said, oh, she said many awesome things in the beginning, but one was do the next right thing, the next right indicated thing. And that's all I could have the capacity to focus on. Okay, what's the next thing? Maybe I needed to do my laundry. Maybe I needed to pay a bill, which terrified me. Maybe I needed to make a phone call and in little steps and then to remain in the moment only. That was the, I know there's, there's the saying in the AA, it says one day at a time. I couldn't handle one day at a time. For me, it was this moment and then this moment. And then that moment, if I started to think about all the things that were coming my way as the repercussions of what I had done and how far I had gone, I would be overwhelmed and I'd be drinking again. And that's the one thing that I still carry with me right now because I have, you know, I, my life is amazingly wonderful and I'm happy every day, but there's still some things that, that carry over from when I was drinking that I'm still dealing with. And if I start to look at them all, I will get overwhelmed again. So I just have to do the same thing. I'm like, okay, I am not going to think into the future. I am going to stay right here and do what I can in this moment because my brain can't handle too many things at one time, but I can be here and present and happy in the moment. And so as I progressed, you know, in time and with sobriety, I was immediately, I immediately had serenity because I can deal with one moment. And so it was easy for it was easier for me than than some people that I, that I watched who had a hard time staying in the moment and and maybe had um, I I don't know I can't speak for them but immediately I felt like okay I've got this this is my solution and um, I, I don't have anything to worry about because I have a higher power who's taking care of me and that's how it went I immediately felt relief. I, I, I haven't had a relapse. I haven't felt like having a relapse, but I have had, when I step away from the program uh, or I get involved in my life too much that I'm not doing the things that my program requires or doesn't require, my program in, uh, suggests, then I start to have these feelings creep back in of doubt, you know, in myself and anxiety and, and those things. And when I start to feel those things come creep in, then I know what I'm doing. I know I'm not making it to the meetings. I know I'm not talking to the sponsor enough. I, you know, I read stuff on meditation and, um, I tend to, I tend to be bent more towards the, the Buddhist outlook. You know, when I'm not reading stuff like that, that puts things in perspective, then I start to feel anxiety creep back in. And that's when, you know, that's the wrong path to go down because at the end of that path is a drink for me and, and, and that's out of the question. Oh, the anxiety. At the end of that path is a drink. That is a story of my life right there, Des. And that's what I need to keep in check is my anxiety as well. And Des, the topic of today's podcast is I didn't have to drink over that. Talk to me about something traumatic in your life that has happened in sobriety that you didn't have to drink after. For example, my uncle died a little less than 24 hours ago. I'm recording this podcast in his office, which is directly next to his room. This is something that I haven't drank over yet. I felt every emotion in the book, including the impulse to reach out and grab a drink, but I'm not going to drink over this, Des. Talk to me about something in sobriety where you normally would have drank over, but you decided not to pick up a drink. My entire sobriety has um, been cursed with uh, my my parents. Uh, it was my dad and my stepmom are the ones who took my son, and I'm a very uh, dysfunctional family. Um, and they didn't want 
to give him back. And they, there was actually uh, the counselor and, and some of the people that were in Child Protective Services uh, actually realized and saw that what I was saying was true, that there was alienation to where the, the, my, my dad was saying things to my son um, to discourage him from trying to further and, and regrow our relationship. And that has continued on in the most uh, oh insidious and venomous ways, and it continues to this day with him. And um, it's a constant battle. And I heard him on the phone saying things, and it's just um, you know you. I, I would hope that you know as a parent, he would be trying to encourage me to be sober and encourage his grandson to to be. Um, uh, I don't know, open to his mom. And my son and I now have been back together for a year. Uh, he just mentioned that. And we have a closer relationship than we ever had. And it's, it's very wonderful. But it's something that my dad resents. And um, it's, it's, it's really very toxic. And, and uh, he's the last person on my uh, amends list. And I've thus far refused to to make amends to my father because there's so much going on and the, and it makes me so angry. I can feel it even now talking about it. It just makes me, he spreads it. It's, it's and I get so churned up inside just the, oh, I don't want to say the hatred, but it's just such anger and, and resentment I have towards, you know, here I am trying to do something really, really good and, try, and I'm bettering myself. And I have and actually the steps that I've taken and, and where I was compared to where I am now, it's, 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 it's something, it's noteworthy and something that he should be happy about, but it's like he, it's not, and it's, it's, he resents it and he's angry and he does little things. So for the entire time, it's been, there's been this shadow of my father and it, and it doesn't, it ha things happen. And, uh, yes, I would drink about that every day. The, the anger that I'm feeling, I would drink over it, it, in a heartbeat um, if, if, I, if I didn't have this program and if I hadn't been sober this long. So, um, and, and he's sick, and he keeps having scares, and he goes into the hospital. My mom has Alzheimer's. She's in the hospital. And um, these things just, uh, they're just things, and they have no... There's no reason for me to drink over them. I, what I have right now is peace, and I haven't had peace probably the majority of my life. I have serenity, I have happiness, and I have the knowledge that I can I can live with these things. These things aren't going to kill me. Even the fear isn't going to kill me. And I, actually, I don't even have any fear anymore. I'm at peace, and and maybe that's the they're jealous of I. It's not even my, it's not for me to even think of. And I guess for me to know that I'm fine. And it doesn't matter what they think of me. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me. So I, it, it doesn't matter. And it's not worth drinking over. And that, that would give them exactly what they wanted. Nothing's worth drinking over. My son loves me and my daughter loves me and I have them back. And and we're, we're, we're happy and we're joyous and we laugh all the time. And, and, and I don't even think about that. And what's really cool is that the other day I hurt my back and I was on a bike ride. And typically, if I were to be laying down on the couch in the middle of the afternoon, you know, my son would be looking at me and trying to determine whether or not I've been drinking. And he just came in and took care of me. And he, he knew. He didn't even have to. He didn't even have to wonder. And that's the victory, is that there's no doubt any, anymore, and he's not afraid for me anymore, because he knows that I, 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 
I've got a program and I'm working it. Des, we have reached the rapid fire round. Now, please try to answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Des, what was your worst memory from drinking? It was waking up with everything gone. That was my worst memory. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I plan to continue helping other alcoholics and trying to spread the word that there's no reason for shame. We have a disease and there's no reason to not come forward. If I would have known more about this disease, uh, I would have come forward and I would have been sober a lot sooner. Ditto on that response. Des, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Oh, my crazy sponsor. Um, all, uh, the, the, the meetings and my crazy sponsor. It's good to have somebody who will keep me in line and, um, and knows exactly what I'm trying to hide if I'm trying to hide something. Des, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Like I said, it's uh, stay present in this moment and do the next right thing. You know, don't look, don't, oh, and don't borrow trouble. That means if I'm, if I, what if this happens, what if that happens? You know, that's borrowing trouble that's not here. Don't borrow trouble. Don't borrow trouble. I'm writing that down right now because I have borrowed plenty of trouble. And Des, last question, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? All you have is right now. It's all you have. It's all you have control over is what you're doing right now. And so if you you can handle this moment and and not drinking, you know, and thinking positive thoughts and, and doing the right thing, then you can handle forever. Forever is just a collection of little right now moments. Uh, and so that's, that's what I would say live for right now, live in this very moment. And, and that's what's going to keep it serene and safe, safe, safe in the moment. Des, thank you so much for joining us and helping me stay sober. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. You might be an alcoholic if. And these come from you. So if you got some good, if you might be an alcoholic, if lines, email me at info at recoveryelevator.com. This one's from Tommy. You might be an alcoholic if you look out the window after a night of drinking and wonder where the hell the car is. Thinking you may have crashed into a ditch, gotten your car impounded, who knows? Then finding out later that you did crash into a ditch, but you couldn't find the car because your good friends buried it in shrubs so the cops wouldn't find it. You might be an alcoholic if you fill your grape-flavored vitamin water with red wine before attending your kid's choir concert. This one's from Eric. You might be an alcoholic if you find yourself making out with some girl on the dance floor and you're gay. This one comes from Claire. You might be an alcoholic if you push your friend, who also is an alcoholic, across the town in a stolen shopping cart. This one's from Rachel. You might be an alcoholic if you fall on your face while giving your friend a piggyback ride home from the bar, resulting in a broken nose the day before an important job interview. Again, I would like to dedicate this podcast episode to Frank. This one is for you. I had mentioned several episodes. A cool thing that I have been able to do in sobriety is learn the piano. Yeah, it's tough. There's a lot of keys. Some are white, some are black. Some are sharp, some are flat. Sometimes there aren't sharps and flats in between them. But when I pulled out that piano and was able to play a couple chords, I wrote that song for Frank. I'd played it on previous podcast episodes, but here it is again. Frank, thank you so much for being an incredible uncle to me for 33 years. You may not be with us, but you're still with me, and you'll be glad to know that I'm not gonna drink over this. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You gotta take the stairs back up. You 